Where were you two years ago on the night of January 26th? You probably don't even remember what day of the week that was, do you? If one of your good friends, someone you see all the time, said that you'd been at their house that night, I bet you'd believe them, right? What if your friend said that there was an argument that turned into a violent fight? You don't remember it, but maybe you were drunk. You hate to admit it, but from time to time, you do overdo it and black out. Or maybe you've just forgotten about it. Who knows? Now, what if they said that at the end of the fight, a young man was dead and you helped bury the body? There's no way your mind could just forget about something like that. Or is there? What if not one, not two, but four of your friends all swore under oath to this exact same story? Wouldn't you start to wonder if maybe somehow it was true? This is the story of Iceland's most controversial murder case, the Reykjavik Confessions. I'm Ashley Flowers, and this is International Infamy, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm taking you on a world tour of 15 notorious crimes from 15 different countries. Today, I'm heading to Iceland to look at one of the strangest investigations in world history. There's political intrigue, alcohol smuggling, two murders, and a massive criminal conspiracy, the kind of story that's almost too wild to be true. And it might be. Even though six people confess to being involved in this saga, the evidence suggests that none of it ever happened. All of that is coming up. Stay with us. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Play it now with Game Pass. Hi, I'm Michael Weatherly. And I'm Cody DePablo. We played agents Tony Donozo and Ziva David on NCIS, one of the world's biggest shows. And now we're doing a rewatch podcast. This is Off Duty with guests like Sasha Alexander. I'm really happy to see you guys, by the way. Eric Olson. By the way, you broke a finger. I lost a nail. <laughs> We've never really done this. Watch and listen every Tuesday on Spotify. Foof. It's a freezing, snowy Saturday night in January 1974. This 18-year-old kid named Goodmunder Anerson stumbles out of a nightclub roaring drunk and realizes he's in trouble. The weather is so bad that the taxi drivers have all gone home, which means Goodmunder has to walk the six miles back to his house in Reykjavik. 
Over the next few hours, at least two cars drive past and see Goodmander stumbling, but no one stops to help him. They figure it's just another drunk kid coming back from the club. He'll find his way home eventually. But Goodmander never makes it back. Nobody hears from him the next day. By Tuesday, the cops send out a search team. But from the very beginning, the feeling is that they're never going to find him. See, the area Goodmander was walking through is covered in lava fields. I'm talking miles of cracky black rocks with huge gaps and deep crevices. It's super dangerous, especially at night. And the crevices are so deep that if you do fall into one and die, your body's probably never going to be found. So after a few weeks, the search effort is called off. Everyone assumes Goodmander is dead, which is a tragedy, but no one suspects foul play. Until 10 months later, when another person disappears near the same area. On the morning of November 20th, a car is found parked at a cafe near the harbor in Keflavik, about 30 miles away from Reykjavik. It's unlocked and the keys are still in the ignition, as if the driver had just stepped out for a second and never returned. The police learn the car belongs to a 32-year-old construction worker. His name is Gerfiner Einarsson, and he hasn't been seen since the night before. Gerfiner's wife says their phone rang a little after 10 p.m. on the previous night. Gerfiner answered it and said something like, okay, I'm coming, before getting in his car and leaving without telling her where he was going or who he was going to meet, which is super out of character. By the time the police check the phone records, they've been erased, so it's impossible to know where that call came from. But witnesses at the cafe where the car was found say that a man with dark hair and a leather jacket came in to make a phone call at around 10.20 p.m. So that's probably the person who called Gerfiner. But the weird thing is, none of the witnesses had seen this man before, which means he must not be a local. But whoever this mysterious out-of-towner is, he was likely the last person to see Gerfiner alive. As soon as the news leaks, the press has a field day. I mean, keep in mind, Iceland is a teensy tiny country with practically no violent crime. At the time, the whole population's only about 216,000 people. And you know how it is in small towns. When a rumor starts, it spreads. Anyway, here's how the gossip starts. Everyone knows that the harbor in Keflavik is a prime spot for alcohol smuggling. Now, alcohol wasn't illegal in Iceland, but it was super expensive. So a lot of nightclub owners would cut costs by smuggling it in from other countries. So if Gerfiner headed out to this harbor in the middle of the night to meet a strange man from out of town, he must have been involved in smuggling, right? It's the only theory that makes sense. And at first, that's all it is, a theory. But a week after Gerfiner goes missing, the police show off this clay sculpture that they commissioned based on witness descriptions of the man at the cafe. When pictures of the sculpture appear on the evening news, everyone in Reykjavik is looking at it and saying, that looks exactly like Magnus Leopoldsen. Magnus is the manager of a place called Kluberin, one of the only nightclubs in Reykjavik. 
He's already been suspected of smuggling, so there's that connection. But here's the kicker. It turns out Gerfener was at Klubrin just two days before he disappeared. According to his friends, while they were at the club, they saw Gerfener talking to some guy that they didn't recognize. He was in his late 20s and had dirty blonde hair, so that's definitely not Magnus or the guy from the cafe. But Gerfener never told anyone who this person was or what they discussed. And that's where the trail goes cold. The police can't find this mysterious blonde guy. They can't find anything linking Gerfener to smuggling or to Magnus. And no one is sure if Gerfener has anything to do with Guthmunder, who disappeared 10 months before him. Over the next year, the rumor mill keeps turning. The press keeps speculating. And by the end of 1975, the police hear a piece of gossip that finally links all the pieces together. There's a 20-year-old petty criminal in Reykjavik named Saivar Sezelski, who supposedly knows something about what happened to Gudmunder. Saivar has already been on the police's radar for a while. He's the ringleader of this little group of smugglers and drug dealers. Not like a serious crime boss, more like a local nuisance. And I'm not sure how the cops heard that he has information about Gudmunder, but they have the perfect opportunity to bring him in for questioning. Saivar and his girlfriend Erla are both wanted for this minor embezzlement scheme. The case has been building for a while, and in December 1975, the police finally have enough evidence to arrest them. The timing is perfect because Saivar and Erla have an 11-week-old newborn daughter, so investigators use that as leverage. They tell Erla, if you cooperate, you'll get to go home to your baby. If you don't, you're never going to get out of here. And that's not an empty threat. The way the justice system works in Iceland at the time, investigators can pretty much keep suspects in custody for as long as they want if the alleged crime is serious enough, even if there's no evidence against them. Saivar is used to this. He's been held in solitary confinement for up to a month before. He's not going to crack. But Erla has never been arrested. She's a 20-year-old new mother with a baby she desperately wants to get back to. She knows the sooner she confesses, the sooner it'll all be over. So after six days in custody, Erla confesses to the embezzlement. The investigators are like, thanks, you're free to go. We'll be in touch with your court date. But as she's grabbing her coat, one detective pulls out a photo and says, actually, one last thing. Do you know this guy? Erla says, yeah, that's Gudmundur Einarsson. Suddenly, Erla is no longer free to leave. Even though she says she hasn't seen or heard from Gudmundur since they were in high school, the investigators aren't buying it. They keep asking her questions like, where were you on the night he disappeared? Where was Saivar? Bear in mind, it's been almost two years since the night in question. Erla's trying to be helpful, but she doesn't remember much. They press her for hours until, finally, one detail comes to mind. On the night Guthmunder disappeared, Erla was home alone in their apartment. Saivar was gone. He was supposed to be in Denmark, but he did have a habit of lying about where he was going, so she couldn't be certain. 
In the middle of the night, Erla thought she heard the voices of Sivar and two of his friends outside her window. One was a man named Christian, and the other she didn't recognize. Erla heard the three men walk around the front door and come inside. Then she woke up terrified and covered in sweat and realized it was just a dream. There was nobody there. You know how dreams usually involve bits and pieces of real life? Well, a few weeks earlier, those same guys showed up at their apartment unannounced. Saivar told them to leave, and he warned Erla that they were dangerous. So Erla's thinking, you know, I probably had this dream because I was home alone and I was scared. Nothing more to it. But the investigators aren't so sure. In fact, they don't think it was a dream at all. Maybe those voices were real. Maybe Erla had only convinced herself it was a dream because she witnessed something so traumatic that night that her memory blocked it. For example, a murder. It sounds unbelievable, but one of the investigators tells Erla, one thing is for certain. You are not leaving here until we find out what happened to Goodmander Anerson. Alone in her cell that night, after almost a week of solitary confinement, Erla is feeling helpless. Part of her actually wonders if the police are right. Was it all just a dream? Or did she somehow watch a murder happen and forget about it the very next morning? What trips her up, though, is her apartment is super small. She can't imagine how someone could have been killed in there without breaking anything or waking the upstairs neighbors. Like, logistically, it seems impossible. But by the next morning, Erla is thinking, it doesn't matter. Just make something up and get out of here. So after another six hours of interrogation, Erla signs a confession that goes like this. On the night Goodmander disappeared, she heard voices inside her apartment. She got up and she saw Saivar, his friend Christian, and another man she didn't name, carrying something heavy wrapped in a bedsheet. They took it outside, and when Saivar came back in, he told Erla not to say a word about what she saw. With her statement complete, Erla is finally released. She's sure that as soon as anyone fact-checks her confession and realizes there's no evidence, Saibar will be out of there too. It's obviously nonsense. But then something happens that Erla doesn't expect. The next day, investigators bring her testimony to Saibar, and he says, It's true. I know exactly what happened to Goodmander. Coming up, the police lock in on their suspects. Imagine living with a secret so big that if anyone ever found out, it would change everything. Imagine carrying that secret with you every day, desperate to one day get it off your chest. Do you think you could take a secret like that to the grave? I'm Estefania Hageman, host of the new podcast series, Deathbed Confessions, the show where we dive deep into the most explosive things people have admitted to while drawing their last breath. From murder, fake identities, heists, illicit affairs, and even top government secrets. This season on Deathbed Confessions, we investigate cases like Frank Thorogood, the construction worker who claimed that the drowning of Rolling Stones founder Brian Jones was no accident. Margaret Gibson, a silent film actress who, while dying of a heart attack, 
confessed to one of the most famous unsolved crimes in Hollywood history. And ex-CIA officer Howard Hunt, who on his deathbed confessed to playing a role in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes weekly starting July 21st. Follow and listen to Deathbed Confessions for free on Spotify. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Now back to the story. After more than a week in solitary confinement, Saivar still refuses to cooperate. He won't admit a thing about the embezzlement that he was arrested for until he's confronted with Erla's statement, implicating him in a totally different crime, Goodmander's murder. All of a sudden, Saivar admits that it's true. On the night in question, Goodmander did, in fact, come over to Saivar and Erla's apartment. Saivar's friends, Christian and Trigby, were also there. There was an argument which turned into a fight. All three of them ganged up on Goodmander, and somehow in the fray, Goodmander was killed. Obviously, they had to get rid of this body, but no one had a car. So Saivar called his friend Albert, who had access to his dad's car. Albert came over, they put Goodmander into the trunk, and drove out to the lava field where they dumped the body into a crevice never to be found. Okay, so it's weird that after a week of being so uncooperative, Saivar is suddenly confessing to a murder he wasn't even arrested for in the first place. But regardless, the next day, the police bring in Christian, Trigvi, and Albert for questioning. Now, all three of these guys are in their early 20s, and they're all part of Saivar's little circle of criminals. Christian, who's kind of the muscle of the group, is actually already in prison for theft. And he isn't exactly tight-lipped. In fact, he's the one who allegedly spilled the beans about Saivar and Erla's embezzlement. But when he's transferred to Reykjavik, he's blindsided. He says he doesn't know anything about Goodmander or how he went missing. Drigvi is bewildered too, partially because he's a heavy drinker and drug user. And as soon as he's behind bars, he likely goes through serious withdrawals. After a few days, he's talking to himself and hearing voices. The prison doctor gives him sedatives to calm him down, but they only make him more delirious. Through it all, though, Trigvi keeps his story straight. He knows absolutely nothing about Guthmander. Then there's Albert. He's not really a career criminal. He's a cannabis user, but he's pretty quiet and stays out of trouble. He's not used to being arrested, and he's apparently high when the cops bring him in. So Albert is immediately pegged as the weak link. Right after he's arrested, the detectives interrogate him without a lawyer present, and he quickly confesses to this story. After Saivar called him, he drove his dad's yellow Toyota to Saivar in Erla's apartment. He stayed in the car and watched through the rearview mirror as the other guys put the body in the trunk. 
They all got in, drove out to the lava fields, and when they got there, Albert once again stayed in the car while the other three dumped the body. Now, there are problems with this story. First, when police look into it, they find out that back in January 1974, when this all happened, Albert's dad hadn't yet bought his yellow Toyota. He had a Volkswagen Beetle. And here's why this raises a red flag. The Beetle has its trunk in the front, not the back. So Albert couldn't possibly have watched through the rearview mirror as his friends put in the body. And then there's red flag number two. When the detectives take Albert to the lava fields to show them where he parked, he can't pinpoint the spot. Of course, this all happened two years ago. The police figure these are just little memory slips, especially because once Albert confesses, the others start to break as well, and they all agree to basically the same story. A few days later, Christian, the loose-lipped muscle man, becomes the second to crack. He says that he remembers the fight at Saivar's apartment, but according to him, Saivar and Trigby were the ones fighting with Guthmunder. He, Christian, was just a bystander. He says he was really drunk that night, so he doesn't clearly remember how the fatal blow happened, but he does remember driving out to the lava fields in Albert's car. After Christian confesses, the only person still holding out is Trigvi. For two and a half weeks, he continues to insist he knows nothing. But finally, he tells the detectives, you win. I'm ready to tell the truth. Trigvi claims that he and Christian got into a fight with Guthmunder at the apartment. But he adds one key detail. Eventually, Gudmundur was knocked to the floor unconscious, and Saivar gave him one final kick to the head, supposedly killing him. All in all, there are some weird discrepancies, like nobody can agree on who actually killed Gudmundur, and two of the four remember a car that didn't exist. And of course, there's Erla, who just got gobsmacked when she hears about the other confessions. All four of them match her statement to a T, the statement that she made up out of thin air. There's no way four separate people would confess to a crime that never happened, right? So Erla's thinking maybe the police were right. Maybe she saw Saivar and his friends getting rid of the body and completely blocked it from her memory. And if she could forget something like that, what else might be buried in her mind? What else might she have done? That's the state of confusion Erla is in when the police pay her another visit and ask her this question out of the blue. Is it possible that Saivar was involved in the disappearance of Gerfener Einerson? Gerfener, remember, is the second guy who disappeared. About 10 months after Gudmundur, so as soon as they ask, Erla's heart drops, like she knows exactly how this is going to go. Erla says that she knows absolutely nothing about Gerfener except what she's heard on the news. But of course, the detectives aren't buying it. By this point, they're sure that the Guthmunder and Gerfener cases are connected somehow. And when they question Erla further, that elusive connection is suddenly staring them in the face. Erla's half-brother is apparently acquainted with someone named Valdemar, and Valdemar runs in the same circle as Magnus. 
the manager of the nightclub, Klubrin, the guy who's already a suspect in Gerfner's disappearance. Coincidence? Well, you might think so. But when they take this information to Saivar on January 22nd, he immediately says, yeah, I know all those guys, and I was with them on the night Gerfner disappeared. This is the story as Saivar tells it. On the night in question, he drove out to the harbor with Magnus, Valdemar, and Erla's half-brother, Einar. They were supposed to meet Gerfriner to pick up some bootleg liquor. When the rest of the guys were piloting a boat out into the harbor to pick up the shipment, Saivar and Einar drove around town to kill time. When they returned, Magnus was alone. He said there'd been an accident. Gerfriner fell off the boat and drowned. Obviously, no one believes this was really an accident, not even Saivar. The detectives take this statement back to Erla to see if she knows anything more. And lo and behold, Erla suddenly has a story of her own. According to Erla, she also drove to the harbor with Magnus and Saivar. When they got there, her brother was there, along with Gerfriner and Christian. At some point, a fight broke out and Erla got scared and hid in an abandoned house nearby. When she came back, everyone was gone. She hitched a ride home, and when Saivar finally came home later that night, he didn't say a word about what had happened. So now, Christian is implicated, too. Christian, of course, is still in custody for Goodmander's murder. He's been in solitary confinement for a full month now, and he's not doing so hot. Remember those sedatives the doctors gave Trigvi? That wasn't a one-off. After a while in solitary, all the suspects are being forced to take a whole cocktail of sedatives and antipsychotics supposedly to help them sleep. Of course, this keeps them dazed and unable to think clearly, which I'm sure is totally unintentional, right? So when Christian is interrogated later that same day, he's confused for more than one reason. At first, he says he doesn't know a thing about Gerfner's disappearance. He's only been in Keflavik twice in his life. But come to think of it, the second time might have been around the time Gerfner went missing. He can't say for sure because he was using a lot of drugs back then. His memory is pretty cloudy. But at some point in 1974, he remembers being driven out to Keflavik in a big passenger van. He doesn't remember why or who was driving or really anything else, except that when they got to the docks, he saw three people he recognized, Saivar, Einar, and Erla. He doesn't identify anyone else, but it's corroboration enough. Three days later, Einar, Magnus, and Valdemar are all arrested, along with the guy who actually owns Klubrin, who has no apparent connection to the case at all. Immediately, there's a media frenzy. There are headlines all over the country like, Gerfriner, Goodmander, and Drugs, the large crime ring working in Iceland. The fact that there's zero evidence doesn't seem to stop anyone from speculating. Not the press, not the public, not the police. All four men deny knowing anything about Gerfriner. And more importantly, all four of them have strong alibis. But with so much attention on them, the investigators can't just back down. So the four new suspects are locked up in solitary. They're told they're never going free until they confess. 
But weeks and weeks go by, and they all continue to insist they know nothing. And then, in March, someone changes their story. But it's not one of the new suspects. It's Christian. After a little more than two months of fully cooperating with the investigation, he tells the detectives that his entire confession was a lie. He's completely innocent. Coming up, the tangle of truth and lies finally unravels. Now back to the story. Almost two months after Christian confessed to witnessing Gerfner's murder, he suddenly says he wants to withdraw his statement. He wasn't in Keflavik that night. He didn't see anything or anyone. He made up the whole story. Obviously, the detectives don't buy it. They just keep telling him, yes, you were there. Stop messing around. And after a week of badgering from the police, Christian relents and retracts his retraction. He admits again that he saw Erla and Saivar at the dock. But then, at the end of the month, Saivar withdraws his confession too. He announces that everything he said about Gerfener was a lie. He made it all up as a scheme to get back at the Kluberin guys who had apparently threatened Erla in the past. By this point, the entire Gerfener case is in freefall. Two key witnesses have withdrawn their statements, and the third witness, Erla, is on the verge of a complete breakdown. When she's questioned on the night of May 3rd, Erla is so distraught that after the detectives leave, the warden searches her cell to make sure there's nothing she could harm herself with. The prison chaplain stays in Erla's cell with her till 3 a.m. to try and calm her down. Then, when Erla's questioned again the next afternoon, she gives a new statement that's wildly different from the first one. She says that she didn't run away when the men started fighting on the docks in Keflavik. She stayed. Saivar handed her a rifle. They brought Gerfener over, and Erla shot him. All of a sudden, Erla has gone from a witness hiding in a nearby house to the sole murderer. The whole thing is so bizarre that the detectives do something drastic. For the first time in over five months, Erla, Saivar, and Christian are brought together in the same room. Erla repeats her story for them, and something interesting happens. Christian immediately accepts the whole story as true, but Saivar can't believe what he's hearing. He goes off on Erla, like, you know you're lying, no? Then tell me, where did that gun come from? How did you hold it? How exactly did you shoot him? Finally, one of the wardens hits Saivar to shut him up. Saivar flies off the handle and he's taken back to his cell. The whole situation is sketchy. First of all, whether they believe Erla's confession or not, it's becoming obvious that they have to let her half-brother and the three Kluberin guys go. I mean, they all have alibis and there are no longer any witnesses accusing them of murder. All four men are released a week later after spending 105 days in solitary confinement. From a PR standpoint, it's a disaster. The police can't even talk their way out of this one because the rest of the investigation, as it stands, is a complete mess. Here's where we're at. Four suspects are in custody. Erla, Saivar, Christian, and Trigvi. Albert, who helped get rid of Guthmanerd's body, has been released but is still being brought in for questioning on occasion. 
From the five suspects' conflicting statements, nobody's sure which one actually killed Gudmundur. And as far as Gerfinder, nobody can agree on whether he drowned or was beaten to death or shot by Erla, or who was there when it happened or why. And there's another big problem. Magnus was supposedly the one who drove Sybar and Erla to the docks. If he's out of the picture now, who drove them? Obviously, this is a whole field of red flags, but investigators feel like they're in too deep to back out now. Instead of getting to the truth, their main goal becomes to make all these confessions match. So over the next few months, their interrogation tactics get even more brutal. Saibar is the least cooperative, so he gets the most aggressive treatment. The guards keep super bright lights on his cell 24-7. If he manages to fall asleep with a light on, they bang on his cell door to wake him up. Then in July, Saibar is in the bathroom when three guards come up behind him and shove his head into a sink full of water. When they pull him back up, they shout questions at him like, Who did you bring to Keflavik? Where did you go with Gudmundur? They do this over and over until one guard realizes that if they keep going, Saivar will actually die. Meanwhile, Erla is going through her own tragedy. At some point in the summer, she says she's sexually assaulted by one of the detectives. Her mental health, which is already not doing well, plummets to a new low. Erla becomes so detached from reality, the detectives know she's just inventing conspiracies. At one point, she accuses a high-ranking politician of taking part in Gerfiner's murder. At another point, she accuses the American president, JFK, who'd died a full decade earlier. It's been more than seven months since the five suspects were first arrested, and it's clear that the case isn't getting anywhere. It's such a national embarrassment, Iceland's justice minister is furious, so he decides to call in some help. In August, a big-shot detective named Karl Schutz arrives from Germany. He's a former member of the West German secret police, and he has a reputation as kind of a super cop. If there's a difficult case, he can crack it. Schutz is blown away by how disorganized the cops in Reykjavik are. There's practically no forensic evidence. They haven't even found either of the victims' bodies. So first things first. Schutz orders some forensic testing on the suspect's clothing, in Saivar and Erla's apartment, on Albert's car, which Gudmundur's body was supposedly transported in. But the tests come back with nothing. There are a few microscopic spots of blood on Christian's coat, but they can't prove it came from either victim. All they have to go on are the confessions, which of course are in total disarray. So Schutz basically goes through all of the statements from the past half a year and stitches them together into a cohesive narrative. He tosses out Erla's story about shooting Gerfener, and he makes up a new story to explain why they can't find a body. What if they burned Gerfener's corpse and then buried the ashes? The number one problem, though, is figuring out who drove Saivar and Erla to the docks. Somehow, I'm not sure why, the detectives latch on to this guy named Gudion, a former teacher who was like loosely involved in one of Saivar's drug smuggling schemes. Gudion barely knows Saivar and Erla, and he's never met Christian. But after some prompting from the detectives, all three of them agree that Gudion is the elusive driver. 
Gudion is arrested on November 12th. He has no idea what happened to Gerfener or how he got roped into it. It seems clear to him that the whole investigation is a farce. But Gudion doesn't exactly remember what he was doing two years ago on the night Gerfener disappeared. He thinks he was at home with his family, which isn't exactly a solid alibi. And after a week in solitary confinement, he starts to question his own memory. Like, why would two people he barely knows and a complete stranger all lie and say he'd gone with them to Keflavik? Guthion drank too much on occasion, and sometimes he blacked out. Maybe that's what was going on here. Over the next few weeks in solitary, Guthion's grip on reality slips. He's given antipsychotics just like the others, which make him even more pliable to suggestion. Schutz even drives him out to Keflavik and is like, see, haven't you driven here before? Don't you remember this? And no, he doesn't. But he's exhausted and confused and thinks if he goes along with the story, it'll all finally be over. So on December 8th, after almost four weeks in custody, Guthion tells the detectives he drove Saivar and Erla to Keflavik. They got into a fight on the dock, and Gerfener was killed. That's pretty much all he remembers. The whole statement is incredibly vague, but it gives the detectives all they need. A confession from their last suspect. On February 2nd, 1977, almost 14 months after Saivar and Erla were first arrested, super cop Carl Schutz closes the case. Gerfner's killers have been found. There's still no forensic evidence linking anyone to the crime. Gerfner's body still hasn't been found, and the confessions from the four suspects are questionable at best. When Saibar goes before the court at the end of March, he says point blank that he only confessed because of, quote, physical violence by the police and also by the wardens. He mentions the time the warden hit him, the time the guards tried to drown him, all the threats that if he didn't confess, he'd be in jail for the rest of his life. He also points out ridiculous problems with the confession he did eventually give. For one thing, the whole Goodmunder case was resting on the fact that he called Albert to come over and help them dispose of the body. But as Saivar points out, the phone in his and Earl's apartment was disconnected at the time. They didn't pay the bill. Amazingly, no one had figured this out until a few weeks earlier, nearly a year after the story about the phone call had been established. When the detectives finally check with the telephone company, they confirm that Yes, the phone was disconnected. Saivar could not have called Albert to come over. But for some reason, this fact is completely glossed over by the judges. The next day, Trigvi goes to court, and he also claims he's innocent. He says the drugs the guard gave him had made him delirious. He only confessed because he was so out of it, and after weeks in solitary confinement, he didn't see any alternative. Incredibly, though, when it's Albert's turn the next day, he sticks to the story. The impossible story that Saivar called him on a phone that didn't work, and he drove over in a car he didn't have to pick up a body no one has ever found. Even though his statements didn't add up, even though there was no evidence whatsoever, 
Albert's is the story the judges choose to believe. In December 1977, two years after the first arrests were made, the court finds all six suspects guilty. Saivar and Christian are given life sentences for the murders of Gudmundur and Gerfener. Trigvi is sentenced to 16 years. Gudian, the teacher-turned-driver, 12 years. Erla gets three for perjury. And Albert gets 15 months for obstructing justice. That's it. Case closed. After the Reykjavik Six are convicted, the public and the press pretty much forget about the changing statements and retracted confessions. Guilty or not, everyone's just glad it's over. In 1980, an appeal sends the case to the Supreme Court. The convictions are upheld, but the judges reduce their sentences. Within 10 years of their convictions, all six suspects are released. But the people who walk out of prison are shells of their younger selves. Saivar spends the next 15 years trying to appeal the case again to clear his name, but in 1999, the prosecution turns him down. Afterward, Saivar enters a downward spiral. He starts drinking heavily and ends up living on the streets in Denmark, where he dies in an accident in 2011 at just 56 years old. Saivar's untimely death brings attention back to the case. A few months later, a TV reporter gets in contact with Trigby's family. Trigvi had died of cancer in 2009, but his daughter has something that might be of interest to the public. Trigvi's journals from jail. The reporter brings his journals to a forensic psychologist named Gisli Gudjansson, who's a leading expert on false memories. In fact, he coined the term memory distrust syndrome, which is when someone stops believing their own memories of events are accurate. Based on Trigvi's scattered writings, he thinks that may be what happened in the Reykjavik case. I mean, it's not hard to see why. Trigvi was locked in solitary for over 600 days, pumped full of drugs and constantly gaslit by violent cops. Gisley says that at the very least, these confessions deserve a second look. When the story hits the news, there's a firestorm. The interior minister creates a working group to review the Reykjavik case, and what they find is devastating. Gisley says, quote, I've worked on miscarriages of justice in many different countries. I'd never come across any case where there had been such intense interrogation, so many interrogations, and such lengthy solitary confinement. He concludes that five of the six suspects had developed memory distrust syndrome. The only exception is Saivar, who knew he was lying all along. Since the confessions were literally the only evidence, the case is sent back to the Supreme Court for an appeal. And in September 2018, more than 40 years after their convictions, Saivar, Christian, Trigvi, Gudian, and Albert are finally acquitted for the murders of Gudmundur and Gerfner. Weirdly, Erla, who'd only been convicted of perjury, has her conviction upheld. Today, most people in Iceland agree that the Reykjavik case was a horrifying failure of the justice system, and the six suspects who lost years of their life to this case should have never been arrested in the first place. But for the surviving suspects, Having their names cleared hasn't erased the damage done. 
Albert and Gudeon are both still haunted by false memories of crimes they didn't commit. Erla, who's now in her 60s, rebuilt a life for herself, but says that things never went back to normal. She spent years burdened by guilt over her role in the false convictions, unintentional as it was. As for Gudmundur and Gerfener, after more than four decades, their disappearances are still unsolved. Thanks for listening. Next week, I'll be back with another stop on our true crime world tour. And if you want to hear more, you can find all episodes of International Infamy for free on Spotify. International Infamy was co-created by Max Cutler and Ashley Flowers and is a Spotify original from Parcast starring Ashley Flowers. It's executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of International Infamy was written by Kate Gallagher, with writing assistance by Connor Sampson and Allie Wicker. Fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out Crime Junkie and all AudioChuck originals. Chuck originals.